Hi, everyone. Welcome to High Octane Real Estate with Pam Orzan. We are talking the stairway to home ownership heaven. And I'm here with Alan Ehrman with Clear to Close Home Loans. Hello, everybody. And we're going to talk about how not to be that idiot that fucks up their chances of getting a mortgage. Don't be like that guy. You're going to want to tell or have Alan tell us about some of the things that you shouldn't do. Some of the things that people have already done that have really made a mess. I have a story about that, too. And how to maybe prepare, say, if you're self-employed to get a mortgage. But let's talk about some of the silly things that people do and say that they shouldn't to their mortgage up. Be honest with your loan officer. They want to get your deal closed. So what are things I've stumbled across in the past that I've got to pull out of people? If you have a baby mama, let me know. <laughs> if you're paying some alimony, some child support, just because you don't disclose it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Yeah. I'm going to find it. And that's something that an underwriter is going to find. And we're going to have to count those payments against you, right? Exactly. Standard mortgage 101 stuff. You are making mortgage applications and I'm qualifying you based on everything that I see on your credit report, all your debt. Don't go out and buy yourself a new car. Don't go out and buy furniture for that house we haven't closed on yet. Don't acquire any new debt. Things like that kind of kill our deals. I had that happen actually once years ago. The whole situation was a mess, mainly for the for the title reasons and for the mortgage reasons. So it was, a, it was an older couple who had sold two condos. They lived in the same community and up north in Florida. I can't remember where. And they were not married. And she had some serious trust in this guy, which maybe she should not have had. And he says, give me the money for your condo and I'm going to take the money from my condo and I'm going to buy us a condo in Boca on the beach. And he was the one that was applying for the mortgage. She couldn't get a mortgage, obviously retiree. So he applies for a mortgage and then goes out and buys an $800 a month car payment. And right there, that went his mortgage. And he ended up paying cash for the house. He was extremely angry. He tried to blame me, tried to blame that lender, lots of stuff. But really, it was just pure stupidity on his part. In the end, too, I found out that he ended up screwing the, the woman that he was with uh, and apparently loved out of the condo. But nonetheless, that was probably one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my life to go out and start changing your credit picture, your financial picture, when you're trying to obtain a mortgage. You have to have some common sense to know that the lender is going to check your credit. They're going to check your income. They're going to check if you have a job still, depending on your situation right before the closing. He was so, shit out of luck. So that speaks to a bigger kind of issue in the, in, in the industry is that it's counterintuitive. The way an underwriter thinks, the way these guidelines work, the way the actual business of underwriting loans works is oftentimes counterintuitive to what people think. Biggest thing that I deal with is income. I could have somebody who's having the greatest year of their life and they're averaging $30,000 a month going into this year. That doesn't mean you make $360,000 a year, right? We're doing is looking at your past couple of years. And just because you've got your sights set on a $2 million house doesn't necessarily mean an underwriter is going to be able to approve you for that. You know? So there's a lot of counterintuitive beliefs. There's lots of little things that kind of play into where your money comes from. Just because you've got money in the bank doesn't mean you're ready to go. Where that money comes from. You're showing me a $50,000 deposit in your bank statement. I need to know where that money's coming from. Oftentimes people will come into a deal and say, hey, what difference does it make to you? I've got the money, it's in the bank. There are guidelines and things that we have to deal with. People with cash. Our business, unfortunately, cash is a no-no. We need to know where that money's coming from. 
you're looking for things to be consistent, right? Because the bank wants to know that you can pay that mortgage back. So they want to see consistency. So if you're like a young couple, say, getting a gift from mom and dad for $30,000, that $30,000 isn't coming your way every year. So they're looking for to make sure that you can repay as well. And we can actually factor that in. That's not a problem. That's one of the permissible areas that you can actually use for a down payment. But if you're talking about a $50,000 cash deposit at the counter at your local bank, we need to know where that money's coming from. Ideally, those situations are this. I never present a problem without finding a solution for it. So what I tell clients if they get to me early enough in the process is I'm looking for two months worth of bank statements. If your beginning statements and your ending balance, your beginning balance and ending balance are similar, there's no major deposits outside of like payroll, we're good to go. So if you're putting 50 grand in the bank, do it on the 31st of the next month and then show me your deposits starting on the first. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> Strategize people, you strategize. Need, yeah. So the whole point is that it's counterintuitive. Don't assume that you knew, know everything about the process. You've got to go into it and ask questions. And we all want to close loans. We're going to coach you on the best way to do these things. So yeah, there's plenty of ways to screw up your loan. Right. And plenty of ways to make it not be screwed up just by asking questions. I find typically... Some Not typically, but many times where you get someone who's really qualified, but maybe they have a little bit of a different situation or can't necessarily show all their income. They think they know everything and then they decide to not ask their mortgage broker what they should be doing to make sure that everything goes smoothly and what they should do with some of these deposits or withdrawals or payments or whatever it may be. Ask those questions. Jeez, don't think you know everything. We do these things. How many deals you close a year? at minimum 24, right? So we do this every day in, day out, and you guys don't. So that's why it's always good to ask. And I would rather, I don't know, sound like a moron and ask than do the wrong thing and fuck up my mortgage. What do they say? There's no stupid questions. There's only stupid people. Correct. (laughs) I wish that there would be less stupid people and more stupid questions because from my end too, I get the same thing. Nobody really asks. And then they say, nobody told me. I'm like, not really a mind reader. And your lender is going to be the same. So they're the ones that are itemizing everything. They're the ones that are looking at your whole entire everything, your credit worthiness, everything. If you've had a bankruptcy or something like that, even a short sale, just that's the kind of stuff they need to have explained and you need to have all the documentation for them and know that you're not going to just be handed money because you have a good job. Not the way it works, unfortunately. And there's all kinds of these guidelines. If I could show you guys, they're six inches thick, these Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, HUD guidelines. And we have to have a good understanding of all of them. There's little nuances that can kill your deal everywhere from going from a W-2 employee to a self-employed person, which is happening all the time right now. Everybody's going gig economy right now. The world's changing. Unfortunately, the guidelines haven't caught up with that stuff. So when we're talking about people that have an entrepreneurial spirit and are going out and are killing it, and making money, that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to meet those guidelines. So you're not automatically going to qualify for that new house. So, so what do you tell them? We've got some self-employed people out there who try to write everything off, of course. The majority of my friends as real estate agents do that too. So what, do you, what kind of advice can you give people like that? I mean, I've had this happen with realtors who started OnlyFans accounts. Because they're not cutting in real estate anymore, right? You might be going in a situation where you're going from being an employee of a real estate company to all of a sudden you are independently employed as a OnlyFans person and you're killing it. You're making money. You make a million dollars that first year. Guess what? I can't necessarily use that income towards the purchase of your new palatial palace. And uh, congratulations on your new endeavor one way or another. But yeah, we see a lot of that kind of stuff. You've got to pay taxes, people, too. That's another thing. Everyone thinks they can just skirt taxes and they write absolutely everything off and 
they make 150 a year and they show 25. 100%. I just got on a phone call with somebody actually on my way over here in that particular situation, but you can show $150,000 as your top line income and then $14,000 on your bottom line okay, and right. sound some creative deductions. Guess what? You don't make 150,000, you make $14,000 right. a year. And that's what I'm going to qualify. Yeah. For. You can have all of it in your mattress, all your cash in your mattress, but the bank wants to see everything. They look at the tax returns because they trust the government better than they trust you. And I'll tell you this, I don't care what your politics are. I don't care what your nationality, your background, it, nobody wants to pay taxes. And everybody, I look at thousands of tax returns, everybody takes some liberties where they can. And that is universal to everybody. But you should plan if you're going to buy a house, you should plan. So if you are doing that and taking liberties, just that if you're going to buy a house or you plan to buy a house next year and you're self-employed, you're going to have to pay taxes. And I'll be honest with you, I'd rather pay a little bit more in taxes and be sure that I'm not going to be turned down for a loan. So if you absolutely need the housing too, you got people out there that are like, they're in their lease, the lease is over, they have to buy a house or they're going to pay rent and, and rent right now is ridiculous. It's crazy, prices of rent. So if you can get into a house and just pay a little bit more in taxes one year uh, or two, I guess, maybe. So if there's any takeaway from any of this, it's that, uh, yeah, you need to plan for it. We're tax, the guidelines for, underwriting a mortgage have not caught up with what real life is like. And real life is, yeah, everybody's got these gig economies. We're not W-2 employees anymore. And everybody's taking those extra liberties and deductions with their taxes. They're not showing as much income as they probably once were for whatever the reason might be, right? If you're going to buy a house, you got to prepare for that. Our options, we're not back in 2008 in the subprime days where I joke around about how back in the day, we used to put a mirror under somebody's nose. And if it fogged up, we gave you some money for a mortgage. Unfortunately, we're not back in those days. So I don't have too many options for people that have non-traditional income or that are not reporting all of their income. There are bank statement loans or P&L loans or what we call DSCR loans for investors that make deals workable, but they're not pretty, number one. And it's uh, high on they're really high on those. And it's not going to be a loan that's going to be suitable for everybody. But we're appealing to people that want to go out and buy homes right now. Let's face it, this is not like it was when I bought my first home on the market. The $65,000 townhouse that I bought back in 1995, I just recently sold for $300,000 in associations and insurance fees and all that stuff are a lot more expensive. And unfortunately, South Florida incomes haven't necessarily kept up with that, but our housing market is strong. People are buying houses. We need to find creative ways for them to get into these houses. But right there, that's actually a really good point because I get a lot of people, obviously in South Florida, we have so many New Yorkers, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, people are coming from everywhere. And they really, I think, still think we're on the cheap side, but they forget that there's still HOA. I come from Cleveland, Ohio, where like HOAs are few and far between. So here you have to accommodate for that. So almost everywhere has either a homeowners association or a condo association and you have that monthly nut. So that has to be factored into your payment. So if you say, I can spend $2,500 a month on my mortgage, not really, because then you've got your HOA fees, you've got your taxes, and you have your insurance. And here in Florida, insurance still is just super, super high. So that's also why it's important to talk to somebody who really knows what they're talking about locally. Don't use that New York lender that tells you that, oh, I can handle it because I have a license. They don't understand. And I run into this situation all the time. They don't understand our insurance. They think you absolutely need to have your windstorm policy and everything is a flood zone, which 80% probably is a flood zone here, but not all. And the amount that you think you're going to pay per month isn't just your mortgage. 
No, and if you want a competitive advantage in, in, in this crazy market that we're in, you need to have a team. Pam and I talk about this all the time. You need to have your, not only your realtor lined up, you need to have a mortgage person lined up if in fact you're getting a mortgage. Obviously cash is king in this environment one way or another, but you want to have your insurance person on standby, right? You want to compare. You can have two houses that are right next to each other. You're going to see significant differences in the premiums. You want to be on the stand. You want to have an insurance person on the standby because that's going to factor into your affordability, right? The point is, is that you want to be prepped and ready to go. You want your, maybe a poor analogy, but you want your gun loaded and cocked and ready to go. And that way, when the house that you find, that Pam finds for you, has your name written on it, you're ready to go because you understand the payment structure. You understand the expenses. You don't understand how much money it's going to cost you to get into the place. And you're boom, you're ready to go. You're not, uh, you're not second guessing yourself. And you still have the protections of buyer that that are inherent in the Florida contract. Exactly. I had a listing recently, actually, two offers came in where when they were get they were pre-approved, they sent me a pre-approval letter and they were just shocked as the rates were, have been changing. It's been a little bit volatile the past couple of weeks. The rates have been changing and that drastically changes your payment. So if you go from, say, 6.8 to 7.3, that's a big difference in your mortgage. And then those people were not actually qualified buyers for my listing. So you know, right there too, you don't want to be that person that's like totally floored that here's my payment now. Oh my God. You have to know what you're doing and make sure that you have all those things, your ducks in a row before you're the idiot that goes in and says, I'm going to buy this house. I can totally buy this house. And you can't. No, but that's super smart on a, from a listing agent perspective, right? If you get an offer and you're looking at a pre-approval that is two months old at this point, you're seeing a, a full point difference in interest rates at this point. That could definitely affect somebody's ability it's to It's happened twice. In right. the past two weeks. So you need to pick up the phone and call that lender and say, hey, is, is your voice still approved here at exactly. this increased interest rate of 7%? Exactly. Uh, and we do that. I'll be honest. I All of my listings, I call that lender. And I will grill the lender to find, I want to know how much cash you have. I want to know, do you have enough for a down payment? What happens if the property doesn't appraise? Do you have that extra little wiggle room for some negotiations? I want to know when was the last time they pulled your credit was. And I also want to know how qualified you are for the rate and what the current rate is and when the last time that lender spoke to you. So don't don't be lackadaisical about this because I feel like the mortgage thing is the number one thing and you should be doing that almost really, bef yes, 100% before you talk to the realtor because your lender is going to run all those numbers. And you know what else they will do? And Alan will totally do this. You just call them up and you say, I like this one house. Can you run some numbers for me on it? Or I like two houses. I can't decide which one. Can you run the numbers? This is the sale price. This is the HOA. This is the taxes and insurance. Or the taxes, he'll figure out the insurance for you. And they base it on the previous year's taxes. But he'll give you a pretty close number of what your monthly nut will be. And then you really can make an educated decision instead of throwing out random offers and hoping for the best. Absolutely. Listen, when I work with clients, my goal is to, A, get them the best deal because I know that's really Mostly what they care about. Of course. So I'm an independent broker. I happen to work with 20 different banks and largely motivated by my ability to get my clients the best deal that's out there. So that's first and foremost. Secondly, I don't even know that secondly, it's still probably first in my mind is to make sure that I am using my experience to soften any bumps in the road. And this is one of the things that a lot of buyers, especially inexperienced buyers don't, and sellers for that matter too, don't even realize is that there, again, are so many different things that can send your deal sideways. There are so many things that, uh, unless you've experienced and felt pain from them, that you're not necessarily looking out for. And those are the things that are the difference between a good real estate mortgage professional than yep. somebody who's just in it 
and good driving around in a white Mercedes. And I think you and I the other day we're talking about I had this customer. I was telling you about this customer. So it was a young girl buying her first home. She was like, she's a fabulous girl. 23 years old, bought a really nice home for herself. And she, she her property didn't appraise. And I know this neighborhood really well. And I knew that they weren't looking at the right comparables because I knew we had gotten a decent price out of it. And I go and I look at the appraisal and this the, this home she's buying was a townhouse. It was a three bedroom, two and a half bath. And the other comps that he was using were two bedrooms. And I thought, how is this the same thing? So I call up the lender and it was some random lender, not even in Florida, as I should mention, the New York lender. And they just, OK, let me see what I can do. Oh, my God. And within a couple hours, she comes back and says, nope, sorry, nothing we can do. So how is that possible? He literally is using the wrong comps and I'm showing you and I emailed her exactly what they are. How stupid do you have to be to not look at that and say that is a mess and we need to do something better? And they chose not to. And it cost this young girl an additional 30 grand. Her parents gave her the cash, which was such a shame, such a disgusting way to do business. And I let her know she didn't like it, obviously. And I, of course, probably used some words I shouldn't have used. But nonetheless, not condoning that, but it was bullshit. How could she cost this young girl this kind of money and almost lose her deposit over it? That's why it's so important. Just know your numbers, talk to somebody, ask the stupid questions. Even if you think you're going to sound like an idiot, somebody's going to be so happy that you ask those questions. Just don't go. You're an idiot if you go in and buy the try to buy the house and you aren't qualified or prepared for that payment. Oftentimes we are trained to look at the wrong thing. I have people that contact me right off the bat. All they're concerned with is what's your rate? They may not even be their concern. It might be whoever's speaking to them. Everybody, unfortunately, in our business and real estate more than probably any other business has somebody in their life who deems themselves an Mom, um, dad, brothers, uh, cousins, and uncle. Yeah. Knows better, right? So first and foremost, you want to trust your professional. Make sure that they come highly recommended to you. Make sure that you actually do trust them. But let's back up and add some clarity to what the situation that Pam was just talking about. When I'm approving somebody for a mortgage, I'm looking at buckets. The first bucket is your ability to pay that loan, right? So I'm looking at your job. I'm looking at your credit history. I'm looking at your assets, your down payment, where that money's coming from, all that stuff. And there are guidelines that I have to adhere to. The second bucket that I'm looking at is property itself. And this is what you're talking is I want to make sure that it's a livable, good property. And I want to make sure that it is valued at least what you are paying for it. So if a house is on or is being sold for $300,000, we order an appraisal and the appraiser is going out and first determining what homes in the area are very similar to that subject property what the most recent sale is and what's closest to the property. And based on those sales and whatever improvements are made to that subject property, they're giving you a value. So a good realtor is going to list the property close to where it needs to be, maybe or whatever, sometimes a little bit lower. It's all part of the negotiations. Yeah. But the reality is that if your home is priced right, people are going to come see it. And if it's priced really right, they're going to start making offers. And if it's priced really right, you're going to go into a bidding type situation. But the purpose of the appraisal is to determine the value for the thing. And sometimes you just get a dick appraiser. Totally from, they send them from Miami. We're up here in Palm Beach County. Wherever. There's a million reasons you can come up with for why that guy, he's just having a bad day. But there's a certain level of subjectivity to these things. And sometimes we'll get an appraiser that for hook or by crook will will screw up your deal in this particular case by 30,000, you said? Yeah. It's the worst when they'd screw it up by 2,000. Right? 2,000 can really hurt somebody because uh, it's cash out of your pocket. But so here's also one of the situations where an experienced realtor, an experienced mortgage person is going to bail you out of that. So 
If a house appraises for less than what it's being purchased for, then technically, especially depending on how you have the contract written up, you as the buyer may be responsible for that. Unless I can go back to an appraisal, appraiser, and there's a standard kind of procedure for doing it, but I need comps, I need better data. So if what Pam is telling me exists, she's gonna get me those comps that better support that higher value. She knows what she's doing. She priced this house where it was priced for a particular reason or the listing agent. And this, because there was no listing agent actually. So it was actually a for sale by owner who chose to, he was he put it in the MLS and he paid me. So I ended up doing both sides, of course, because that's typically what happens when they don't have a realtor. But he was a nice enough man but he looked at the appraisal just like I did and said, wait, they're not really comparing the same things. And in this particular case, it's not that it, this wasn't the seller's responsibility. And sometimes it is what Alan just said. You price it accordingly. And if you price it, then that's the right answer. But in this case, it wasn't his fault and it wasn't anybody's fault. It was purely a, just a, like you said, a appraiser with a bad day or a shitty attitude or just didn't know the area. So at that point, you need an advocate, right? You need an advocate and a realtor. So I don't need a realtor that's going to call me up and just yell at me. I need a realtor who's going to call me up and say, hey, I've got this comp and I've got this data for you that's going to help you fight our fight. And if it's good, I'm going to win. I'm going to win that reconciliation argument, right? I'm not letting anybody screw up my deal if it's not legitimate. But on the same token, there are deals where, you know, especially in a frenetic market or sometimes buyers. Last year, buyers were paying 103, 104, 105% of asking prices and the appraisals didn't yeah. match up, right? Yeah, sometimes the market moves faster than the appraisals do because, you know, it, that's just the nature of the market. But in this particular case, it was literally just the wrong comparables. And But again, either way, whatever the reason a bad appraisal comes in, you need somebody that's going to be an advocate for you and you have to know how to fight it. And again, with an educated Fine, but you have to have your comps and you have to be able to say, this is why I priced the house. I just did one too, where we were a little, it was my listing and we were a little bit high, Anthony's house. It was a little bit on the high side and we knew that. We wanted some wiggle room for him. He has a really nice house too, though. He does. And he has probably one of the nicest lots in the community. So it did warrant that. But I went in with that appraiser. The other agent is lovely. And she, we talked together and we went in with comps and some of her comps were nice, but they were older. So I said, let's look, let's show these. And we walked in and we sat there and we handed him. We're not really allowed to talk to the appraisers and give them too much information, but we handed him the docs and it came in right at the right number because we had, I had my backing. I could explain to him why we were a little bit higher. We also had a new roof, which if anybody of you here in South Florida know, that roof is changing your life because your insurance is drastically less. So, but you have to have somebody that's going to fight for you. He just looked at you and said, I want this bitch calling me all the Correct. time. Correct. Two this of up. us. So. We double teamed them. Two <laughs> yeah. girls sitting there going, it's going to be right. It's Some people be right, might right? actually advise against your realtor <laughs> being there during the appraisal inspection. But in this particular case, it, you Yeah, you sat there it. with a big smile. Yeah, but that's what you want. You I want, should have offered him a martini or something. You want to kill her. A cocktail while you're doing my appraisal, please. Listen, no. there's two kinds of people in this business. There are people that are accepting of any help, any assistance. They take everything that comes at them with a grain of salt. And there's other people who get pissed every time their phone rings. Right. I appreciate it as a professional. I love it when a listing agent calls me with a copy of my pre-approval letter and calls me and asks me in questions. Like, I know that they're engaged. I know that's somebody that I can partner with. Right. I know that somebody is not going to rip my head off if I call them with a problem that we need to collectively solve, right? That's the kind of stuff that I appreciate. But you're not 1-800-SHYSTER-MORTGAGE either, right? No, that's the a, thing. That's why you have to be careful who you call to use because these people, they're looking at your bank statements and your credit report. They're looking at all your financial picture and then you call like some rando that you find online. Make sure that you use a professional lender. I can tell what color underwear you're wearing by looking at your credit report. 
Oh, interesting. What color underwear am I wearing? Black, for sure. <laughs> He's actually right about that. <laughs> We're not going to talk about how he knows. Anyway. All right. Good combo. Good combo, I think. So we move on to the headbanger housing part of this little podcast here. Always. It's going to be our weekly game, our game show about asking random questions, a little real estate related, a little not, whatever. But today I'm going to ask Alan if you could live in any fictional, fictional, I'm not talking well today, fictional house, which house would it be and why? Good question. Hey, Janine, I want you to come up with an answer too. A fictional house? Yeah, like maybe a TV show house or something. Oh, I, ooh, okay, I got one. So this is probably going to age me, but the first thing that comes to mind is when I was a kid, there was a show on called Silver Spoons. With Ricky that was Schroeder. a good house. Remember, remember that? That's a great and it house. had a video arcade. This is back when our arcade He was a toy guy. We used to skip school to go to the arcades and arcade game with the shit back then. And he had a train running through his living room and just a happy-go-lucky dad who was basically a kid at heart. and yeah, Because he owned a toy company, right? Wasn't he? He was a millionaire, fun, (laughs) single guy with a train running through his fucking living room. Ricky Schroeder, man. Yeah, Ricky Schroeder, I can do without these days. Yeah, but I was like, how old was I? I was like maybe 11 or 12. So Mm -hmm. Ricky Schroeder, was he was the bomb. Yeah, and that's where the guy from The Fresh Prince also, what's his name? Oh, Carlton. Carlton, yeah. I call him Carlton. I don't think that's his name. That was mine, the one in Bel Air. (laughs) Oh, that's Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Is that your answer? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I love the Carlton dance. Or the mid-century modern, like, Brady Bunch house. Brady Bunch house. Except the only Mm. bad thing about that house, though, is I think it only had one bathroom. Ouch. And Marsha, Marsha. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. It was about Marsha. It was a cool house, but mm-hmm. it had, didn't have enough bathrooms. I could see you living on the love boat. I love the love boat. He knows I love the love boat. Yeah. I could totally live on the love boat. Hanging with Doc at the bar. I'd be at the bar. Yeah, with Isaac. Yeah. Yeah, I would be happy with that because I like to travel. I wouldn't have to be in a house, says the realtor. I wouldn't need to be in a house. I would be on a boat. Traveling the world to exotic homelands. Anyway, so that's the end of our second podcast, everybody. I want to thank Alan Ehrman from Clear to Close Home Loans for coming to visit Happy and to be having here. a little cocktail with us here, Janine. Although Janine didn't have a cocktail with us today. I'm being a good girl. She's trying to be a good girl. We're never good. Don't forget to follow, share, and leave me a five-star review, or I might have to hunt you down. Believe me, you don't want that to happen. So we'll talk to you guys next time. 